I fell asleep and I heard a TV commercial basically saying, you know, bookingsafrica.com, the number one online platform for, um, you know, service providers across Africa. So I remember like literally jumping out of my sleep, like, oh, finally, this is a website that would be perfect for um, my production company so that we can use them for even we had a current job going on where I needed a location. And I was like, oh, great, let me go onto the website to see if I can find this location that I need. And um, literally, I woke up and my TV was off. And I thought, wait, did Nepa take light or what's going on? And I was like, okay, there's still light. I don't know what's happening, but let me just check. I remember the name of the website and I went bookingsafrica.com and the website's available to purchase. And I was like, okay, did I spell it wrong? Bookingsafrica.com, bookingsafrica.com. Because I was trying to, I remember Bookings Africa and I went through all different ways of Bookings Africa and it did, the domain didn't exist. So I thought, okay, do you know what? I'm just going to buy the domain name. This is Origins Africa podcast, where we explore the origin stories of people who have made and are making their dreams come true. Asking the what, the when, the how, and the why. I'm Oshaye, and on this episode, the concluding part of our chat with Fadil Guru, we'll explore Fadil starting a new life in Nigeria after her return from the UK. Fadil will talk about the birth and growth of Film Factory, a multi-award video production company she co-founded with her brother in 2011. She'll also talk about her latest venture, Bookings Africa, a pan-African on-demand digital marketplace for the entertainment, media, and lifestyle industries. Fadil is the founder and CEO of Bookings Africa. This interview was recorded in May 2021. In 2010, Fadi decided to take a break from her work at Google in the UK and explore her curiosity by returning to Nigeria. Now, for many people, Moving back home isn't as simple as booking a plane ticket and waving goodbye to your adopted home country. It can take quite a bit of time and work to reintegrate back into the country, community and life, regardless of whether you've been away for six years or six months. And Fadeh had lived in the UK for over 10 years since she was about seven years old. So what was returning to Lagos in Nigeria like for Fade? It wasn't bad, actually, because I think luckily for me, because I've always been back and forth um, mm-hmm. every summer and every or Christmas, um, I'd either be in Nigeria once a year. So and my dad was very one of those who would bring his work home so I could come home and one day like we're filming in my house or, you know, one weekend oh, we'll all go into one of his clients' houses. So I always, always and then, you know, every time Monday to Friday I'm on holiday here, he's still going to work. So I'd literally go to his office and sometimes I'll work out of his office helping him develop scripts um, I'll just go on set just to see what the, what projects they're working on so um, I kind of always and I, because my a lot of my fam, father's friends are in media so um, I use for example like Danola Gray who's a, a social media influencer in Nigeria his dad is a very popular 
a music composer and scorer for like commercials and for movies and things like that. My dad and Danola Gray have been very good friends. The owner of like TBWA ad agency is my dad's very good friend. The owner of um, Rosabelle um, is actually my uncle. The owner, these are all the like me, STB McCann, okay. Sachi and Sachi. These were all the circle of friends that we had. So for me, it wasn't like, oh, I, I kind of understood it's easy to say you understand the business, but I wasn't too shocked because when they were having issues or when things were going wrong or the generator would not come on on set or you were dead, I kind of had experienced that by just uh, hanging around all this, um, all our family, friends and my dad's colleagues and stuff like that. So, um, okay. yeah, my dad was one of those. He was, he would keep, he'd get us involved in the work, you know? So from a very young age, I remember the first time I was on set, I was probably like five. Yeah, so that's the, my first memory of being on set. So from that, from the front end to the back end, when they're creating the scripts and they're in like the little creative war room, I could be eight years old on a summer holiday, but I'll go to work with my dad and I'll be in that creative war room with them as they're coming up with concepts and scriptings and you know all of that. Or sometimes even when people are coming to pitch to my dad um, you know for whatever it is for production jobs and whatever I'd also sit there and I'd also watch how people would pitch and how he would interrogate and ask questions and rebuttal and buttress and so that um, that boardroom environment was never something that I was uh, that that I was that was unfamiliar to me you know um, for me it was more about working with the mindset of people that were different to me um, I find that I don't want to seem derogatory, um, but when you've, th there's a certain level of exposure when we're talking about, you know, living in a country that's majority in poverty, that's below the poverty line. There's a certain lack of exposure that those people are going to have, but that workforce is who you need to liaise with on a day-to-day -day basis for things to move. True. So it was it was that bridge between my experience, understanding their experience, and trying to get to, trying to communicate so they can comprehend and deliver. Um, you know, if you're trying to communicate, if you if you see in color and you're trying to com communicate to someone who sees in black and white, you have to position your statement um, a little bit clearer than you might over have to almost like over analyze or over explain. Um, or you have to just figure out how to maneuver and position your communication so that they're able to comprehend it better. Because if you have some red roses, some yellow sunflowers, um, and maybe some white lilies, and you tell the, a, somebody who sees them black and white, get me the yellow flowers, they wouldn't, and they come and give you the rose, a red rose, you can't get upset because they don't see, they only see black and white. True. So True. it might have to position my statement and say, there are three roses over there, the one in the middle, the one on the left, the one on the right. Get me the second rose in the middle. So that way you're not necessarily describing it on color, which they don't see. You can describe you it based on number, way? which they understand better. Yeah, I did. It was a lot of, it was very frustrating because I've always worked, I'm hired staff in Nigeria when I opened up, I moved to Nigeria in 2010 and I opened up Film Factory Productions in 2011. So I've been an employer since 2011 in Nigeria. And um, yeah, it was just frustrating because I'd literally say, give me the red flower and they'll come back with a yellow sunshine, with a yellow sunflower. And I'm looking at them like, are you trying to, are you taking the piss? Are you 
and you don't understand me or what exactly is the issue here like why would you do something that i blatantly know the answer to or i blatantly is quite in my eyes is an obvious you know um an obvious action and you still get it wrong i couldn't understand how something simple as get me the red rose you could mistake that for a yellow sunflower so that 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 um tra- that that transition of communication or translation lost in translation you know i really had to skewer my communication skills um and adapt my communication skills not necessarily to dumb it down but just to understand did you come um, to the realization yourself or did you need to speak with someone or did yeah. you read up on it no i came to the i'm a I'm naturally a solution provider. So I never like to complain about things. I always like to think of what can I do? So I started asking, I started looking at people's behavior patterns and then I see that they did something that I wouldn't understand or I would just see as irrational or just illogical. I'd actually take time to sit there and break and I want them to break it down to me. Like, what was your thought process? So I wouldn't tell them that this is a re- at first the first few instances i'd be like why would you bring me a yellow sunflower i told you it was a red rose and you know i'd become a little bit more agitated but then after a while i was like okay this is not sustainable like i can't be you know getting agitated every mm. single scenario let me understand why they bring in me the yellow sunflower so that they don't understand colors so i needed to understand what it was so i'd sit down with them i said okay right when i asked you to bring me this i wanted a red Rose, you brought me this. So explain to me out of all the options of flowers that are here, why did you pick this one? What did you understand that made you choose this one? Then I'll get to the bottom of it, which is maybe they don't understand colors. And I'm like, right, okay, your issues is you don't understand colors, no problem. Now I know when I'm describing something to you, I know how to position and readjust the communication so you can now understand it better and one person's issue may not be another person's issue so it was sure. quite interesting just becoming a bit more patient in just understanding the the, the the society that I'm now in and um like I said I'm naturally a non-conformist but at the same time if you need to un- if you if you understand how the society does work you can break the laws so before you can break a law you need to understand the law sure. that's the way sure. I see it so it took me a while to even understand the law and in me understanding the law it might look like as if I was trying to conform but it really wasn't it was me trying to say okay how can I be an individual even in the society where conformism is and collective thinking is the norm and is the way forward i still need them to be on my side as an individual so they can't alienate me for being too different from them so i needed to see okay what is it where, where's the balance um so yeah it was it's a bit of psychologicals but yeah sure, but it was it's been interesting i'm not still learning <laughs> i'm still learning everybody will always tell you if you're an employer everybody will tell you that hiring staff in nigeria is one of the most stressful things you can do competent staff is uh, they they're quite rare um, and i also blame that to the natural education system and curriculum that we have here as well as culture because it encourages it, it encourages lack of initiative lack of critical thinking don't speak back to your elders do as i say not as i do so why you shouldn't ask why just do it why do i need to go to bed at this time hey why are you asking questions you're rude you're talking back to your father go to you know so these are normal questions that i i we i was allowed to ask as a kid or when you go to school over here in nigeria they generally they teach you to cram 
So you're not necessarily teaching, learning to understand. You're just learning to pass. So that's why they're good at the theory part of it but they're not necessarily good at the practical side of it because they haven't had any chance to actually um, explore that side, that talent that they have. Um, so it, 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 I realized that, okay, if this is the way that they've been thinking and the way they've been brought up since they were a child, I'm not going to change that overnight because um, to change the way someone learns and to change their mindset and to change consumer behavior takes a long time. So you kind of have to understand, okay, this is what they've been taught. This is how they behave. So how can I still extract the most value from them that would enable my goals rather than trying to spend so much time trying to teach them? So you have to then weed out the ones that are still flexible enough to be um, not necessarily manipulated, but to be to, 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 to be to be able to be adapt and to meander through different roles and you know and be, I'm willing to learn um, something different. There are people that still have that, and I look for people who are curious, who are hungry, who can say yes. Everything that I've taught, I'm going to put it to the side, and I'm going to not be afraid to try something new, and I'm going to ask questions. So there's certain ways that I engage with my staff where I ask open-ended questions, and everybody has to give their own answer, and I never tell you if you're right or wrong. It's just literally, what's your opinion on this? It's like the Moses, Jesus, and you know, Muhammad uh-huh, situation. Uh-huh. Hypothetically speaking, what would you do if this came along? And I want to see how everybody's brain starts to think because when there is no right or wrong answer, you're teaching them to just to, to think and not to be af- not to be afraid to think outside of the box and to come up with something wild, um, like a new future. If this was our past. Um, mm. So yeah, those are the things that I still try to do with certain members of my team to, to, to groom them. Okay. I heard you say, uh, so whilst you were at Google after a couple of years, you started to realize perhaps it wasn't aligned to where you wanted to go. And then you returned to Nigeria. So I'm curious at that point, what were you looking out for? What goals or dreams did you have? Like I said, growing up, I always thought that ultimately the the success, the epitome of success was um, being an entrepreneur and owning your own business and leaving your own legacy in that world. And I felt like Google was going to swallow that up. And also because I never really applied for Google. It was nothing that I'm I'm super grateful that I was able to work for them, Um, but I kind of fell into it. So just after a while, you just kind of think, okay, if I didn't if I didn't get this opportunity, what would I do? Would I still be be a fashion designer would i be a fashion journalist working for vogue would i be like what else could i actually really be i know i have access to this job but outside of it what else could i explore and um, that's literally what i wanted i was quite curious to the unknown you know when they said the grass is greener on the other Mm -hmm. side Mm -hmm. so i was kind of like okay i've got this i know i can get it now i know I, i can always come back to it anytime that i want so what else can the world offer me outside of this um and yeah i just wanted to explore something else because i wasn't i just had this like i said like i was i'm still kind of an indiv- i'm a big i'm big in individuality and i'm big on entrepreneurship and i just didn't know how that would play out working full-time for google because literally you'll give your life and soul to them because it's really demanding um so i think I, at that stage i just wanted to i just wanted to make sure that i was on the right path 
And I thought, let me try something else just to make sure that if I don't enjoy it, because like I said, I've never been afraid to try something else. And people would have been like, a lot of my friends are like, you're leaving Google to move to Nigeria where you don't even have a I job. Know, right? All my friends thought I was <laughs> Everybody thought I was crazy. Like, you don't even have a job where you're going. I was like, nope, I'm just going to see how it goes. <laughs> like, and that's that. And I'm fearless in that way because I always feel like I'll land on my feet, just like the baby who would always learn how to walk. No matter what, even if I stumble along the way, ultimately I will get on my feet. And that's just how I just keep on going. But there was some, I guess there was some, was there a safety net of some sort? Maybe some savings she did not work for a while or was it that you had nothing and then you took a leap? No, I've always had savings. I've always, um, my parents made sure that we were very financially savvy growing up. For example, pocket money, we had to work for it. So I always understood the value of money. And even like my first car in London, um, my dad was like, okay, whatever you save up, I'll match it. So if you save up one pound, I'll give you one pound. If you save up a thousand pounds, I'll give you a thousand pounds. If you save up 10,000 pounds, I'll give you 10,000 pounds. So whatever you can work to save up, I'll match it. So I never looked out for handouts. I've never been the person that's just like, oh, um, so even raising funding for me was quite difficult because I felt like, oh, that's the first time where I'm going to get get money enough to owe yeah. somebody, quote unquote, owe somebody, even though, of course, they own part of the, I've given them equity into, into the business. But I felt like I was that was daunting for me because it was the first time. I'd, I never even had a credit card because I'd never mm. owed people. So um, I, this wasn't, yeah, that wasn't my lifestyle. Um so yeah, no, I was, I was, I had my own, I had savings, I had my money. Um, and I was, when I moved to Nigeria, my first job was a freelance journalist. I wrote for PM everyone from, from PM, from Guardian, from, you know, all the various newspapers. Um, so magazines. you returned so and was, you wrote to them that you were in the country and you'd like to be a columnist with them. Um, did it happen? How did it happen? First of all, PM newspaper was run by Uncle Baba Femi Ojudun. Um, who was a former senator, but he used to run the PM newspaper, very close family friend. Um, so once again, it's just at my house and he's just like, okay, you move back, do you want a job? Or you've studied journalism, let me read something that you've done. Oh, you're great. Do you want your own article? Great, cool. And he gave me my own column. This was Once again, it was just leveraging. Um, a couple of months, maybe within two months. Okay, great. Leveraging relationship. So yeah, within two months. I was just leveraging relationships of like family friends and my dad's colleagues or acquaintances and just, you know, any uncle or auntie that would come to my house, auntie, this is what I do. How can you help me? How can I help you? Can I come and work in your office once a week? Whatever it was, even down to um, my first radio station was Radio Continental. The MD at the time was also a family friend. Then even Beat FM, Uncle Crystal Bussy, who owns Beat FM, also a family friend. So these were the network that we, then the access to people that we have. Um, that my family had access to open doors. So, and then, you know, even if, if I couldn't work for anyone, my dad already said I can come and work in his advertising agency. And of course, but I didn't want to work for my dad. I was, I didn't want to start my own legacy um, piggybacking off of my dad and feeling like, Oh, you're just, you're able to just, you know, get your foot into the industry because of your so-and-so's child. Um, I didn't want that. I wanted to start my own thing. Um, and, have success and merit. Yes, you can open the doors to other companies, whether it's a newspaper or a radio station or a TV station or whatever else. You can open those doors, but I'm the one that actually has to do the work. I felt like if I was working in his company, it'd be easy for me to just get away with just doing nothing and still getting paid. And I just didn't want that. I actually wanted to um, merit um, on my own. Um, so yeah, that's those are my first few jobs. And then the subsequent newspapers were, yeah, then me, meeting other people. So um, in my 
within a few other months, I met a lady called Kiki Kamanu, who's a designer. But at the time, she was the head editor for, there was a newspaper at the time called Next 234. Next 234 had a weekly lifestyle magazine called Elan, Elan Magazine, and Kiki Kamanu who's a designer she was also the i believe the creative director or the editor of that magazine so i met up with her just on a fashion thing i think i was shooting a music video i was styling it and um i was producing a music video and i was also styling it because i was, was for, fish, um, for a film factory i'm not even sure who it was for okay mm, maybe it was for film factory i'm not sure it was quite early on okay I met her and she and told her, that, you know, I've already I write for other newspapers and publications from the UK. She read a few of them, she loved it. So I started writing for Elan freelancing. Then my work got noticed by some of the newspaper guys because I was able to write lifestyle fashion pieces for the magazine, but they also read some of my serious things. So I was able to be published in next two, three, four. Then I'd met the Ibru family. So I started writing for The Guardian now and again. Yeah, so Interesting. literally like I just leveraged my network. In 2011, Fade co-founded Film Factory, a multi-award-winning video production company, together with her brother, Shasong Guru. They've produced TV adverts and documentaries for multinationals such as General Electric, Coca-Cola, Microsoft, and MTN, as well as produced music videos for some of her favorite Nigerian artists, including Wizkid and Debanj. But how did that happen? To be honest, it was almost like an extension of what my brother had already been doing in the UK. So Chasson already had his own production company, the SDKN. He had Mastermind Productions and he had SDKN Productions. I'd been working with him for years as a producer, just, you know, um, helping him out whenever I could with my studies and work or whatever. Um, so I was in Nigeria. Of course, I moved to Nigeria, but Chasson's always lived in the UK, but he'd always moved to come to Nigeria on holiday or just to work and then shoot a couple of productions and then leave. So me, him and my dad in the living room one day, we were just sitting down brainstorming and I was just like, okay, um, we could have a production company in Nigeria, but how would it work without him being on ground, blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, well, I know enough about the production industry to be able to run the business, even when Shasan's not here. So what I could do is schedule all the meetings, all the productions. And then whenever we, he, we have a job, I'll make sure that he comes and just does everything back to back. So he can spend like three weeks in Nigeria and shoot like six different productions and then he'll leave and then he will have to come back for like another month and a half or two months and then he'll come back again for another two weeks. So that was kind of how we wanted it because my dad was also doing a lot of productions and he's just like, if we had a registered production house, then he could give us the entire work to also then produce that. Oh, okay. And then if we get local content, then we can then also have a local showreel because the problem that we were facing when I moved to Nigeria was all our showreel, my brother and I, our production showreel was based on an international clientele. Unfortunately, a lot of Nigerian com- uh, companies didn't believe that we were the ones that produced the content because we had stuff like Fanta, Coca-Cola, but like, let's say for a Polish Fanta, um, a Polish Fanta commercial, or, um, you know, maybe a Spanish Sprite commercial. And they'll be looking at us like, well, you guys just went on YouTube and um, downloaded these videos and trying to sell it to us. We want to see something local. Yeah, they're like, they want to see something local because the media entertainment industry is so small here. So if you call the MD of Coca-Cola here, you can speak to the MD of, you know, of whichever bank, 
or whichever mm-hmm. F- FMCG, and they can be like, oh, that's the company that did it for us. So the Nigerians are like, oh, but who did it? Who is their father? Who is their, everybody, <laughs> you know, they want kind of like that accountability and they want to be able to trace to know who did it. Um, so we, that hindered us initially and we thought, okay, so the best thing we need to do is have a local company um, that is registered locally and then we need to start get sourcing local clients so we can then build our local showreel. Um, so the quickest way to be able to get local clients is, of course, shoot stuff for my dad. So we started building our showreel through him. Um, then, of course, we had all the music video artists from your, you know, your band and the entire Mohits. So slowly we started... Um, having a nice robust showreel between corporate jobs and then, um, you know, your t- your music videos and your more entertainment, heavy entertainment driven. I think I read that it was you, um, when Film Factory started, the need for artists and that was what led you to, I think, becoming an OAP. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so I first joined Radio Continental. That was a fluke. Um, my first, my family house is, um, was on the mainland and the, uh, Radio Continental was about 10, 15 minutes drive from my house. So it was really quick for me to get there. So when I went to, I went to TV Continental at first to actually provide services. This is before Film Factory. So it's because Film Factory is 2011. So this is 2010 still. Okay. So I approached TV Continental and I wanted to produce potentially if there was any gaps or what sort of content I could produce for them. I wanted to see what the studio was like, what equipment they used. Because once again, I said like the MD was my Popsies fan. So I was like, okay, let me see how my expertise and experience and skills, how I could, you know, work with these guys. Um, so I went there and I wasn't really, um, they've changed the entire facilities now. But back then in 2010, it was, I um, mean, you know, for lack of a better word, I'd probably say a bit archaic. Um, and I wasn't comfortable because like, I didn't even know the equipment and their, their style of work was just something that I wasn't, um, I hadn't experienced before. Um, so it felt like going back in time. So um, I left there a little bit disheartened, like, okay, I'm not going to get to work with this production company. And as I was leaving, I bumped into my other friend, who is Uncle Femi Shuwalu, who was actually the programs director for Radio Continental. And he's quite, he's also a very popular, he's got a very famous voice as well. So he's like the voice of Gulder and Gulder Ultimate Search. <laughs> and so everybody knows Uncle Femi's voice in Nigeria. Like he's a very popular, like his voice is just really popular, whether it's on radio or on ads and all the iconic brands. So I was like, oh, Uncle Femi, what are you doing here? He's like, what are you doing here? I'm like, I haven't seen you in years. How's the family? He's like, oh, he actually works as the head of programs for, or the head of, like, he basically was the head of Radio Continental. So we're just catching up, how my family in Nigeria and he's like you know you've got a really good voice have you ever thought about being on radio and I was like no not really like I've never even heard my own voice maybe like on a voicemail but I didn't even think it was that attractive so um not really and I had a really now my English accent isn't even as strong anymore like I had a really strong English accent and I spoke really really fast that was a challenge um so even like my major challenge was like saying Nigerian names because I didn't have the intonation I hadn't you know I wasn't familiar with like Igbo names or and I didn't know who's who whether it's senator this person governor this person I had no clue who anybody was so I didn't want to go on air and start butchering like the president's name or something or butchering in the senator's name and then people coming for me so I was really like anxious about that um, but I overcame that and he made me once again jump into the deep water which is every month every every day I'd go to the radio station and literally he'd make me read the newspaper headlines and I'd of course crucify some names but within a few days <laughs> I, I I got into the swing of things um 
so yeah, he kind of offered me an opportunity and I was just like, okay, well, you know, I'm, I'm still looking for other full-time things to do. And, uh, at that point I was actually going to other banks and other telcos and I was trying to offer them my SEO services. Um, when I moved to Nigeria, I went online to try and open up a bank and I thought, all right, I'm a graduate. There might be, cause in the UK, there are a lot of specific graduate schemes that banks do. So, uh, maybe like a no interest, or if you open up a savings account as a graduate, they might give you like a double figure interest or, so I was going, I went online and I was trying to find out, okay, what are the best banks for graduates in Nigeria or what are the most popular banks or whatever? So I was doing my Google search and all the keywords that I'll put in, I found that majority of the banks were not appearing on the first page. Cause imagine if you don't know the name of any bank, you just come to Nigeria and you're just like, okay, the best bank for a graduate student, the student graduate or something. You don't put in the name of any bank. You'd expect that bank websites would show up with the highlights of their offering for students. I'm seeing like maybe like a Linda Ikeji, a Ni- all Niger, Bella Niger, oh. like all the different blogs or whatever who just written about, about banks. And of course I knew that meant that the SEOs were wrong. Um, and the SEOs needed help so that they could actually appear on the first page of Google. So I'm going around to them people, okay, this is how you advertise yourself. And so on, 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 on Google, this is the importance of it. There's a process of pay-per-click ads. And they were very traditional. No, no, no. If it's not a radio jingle or a billboard or advert in the newspaper, we're not interested. <laughs> so whilst I was still trying to find my feet doing that, I told Uncle Femi on radio that I only was av- av- available to work Saturday and Sunday. Um, or was it Friday and Saturday or something? Yeah, it was just Friday and Saturday. Um, so I studied, I shadowed him for about two, three weeks. And after that, I had my own radio show, um, every Friday, Saturday. But, um, so whilst I was doing, then I, so I was doing that. Um, and then we decided to open up film factory. Um, and then I realized that, okay, if that's the case, and I'm going to shoot a lot of music videos, I need to go to the radio station that a lot of artists were flocking to because it would make sourcing your uh, segment, your market segment, your target audience, um, your target market of your target of clientele. Um, it's easy if they come to you. So you need to find out where to go and find them. So I realized that, okay, artists go on radio because they need radio presenters to play their music. So it's better for me to go and work for a radio station that artists want to go to, want to go to. And at the time, BTFM was the hottest radio station in Nigeria. And luckily my dad friends owned it. But I didn't even get it through him necessarily. I was actually headhunted. Um, so I, my radio station on Radio Continental I used to trend. And it used to trend on the weekends and above BTFM. What was the program above? Um, what was it? It was just very light, just music. It was called Club Express. Um, I, was, I had an alter ego. Um, and I was like this dumb blonde girl who was on holiday in Nigeria and she didn't know anybody. Um, and she liked to drink and she liked to party. So you'd always bump oh, into I her see. at the club. So at this club, we then had, um, at this club, we then had um, celebrities at this club, but she didn't know who the celebrities were. So she then end up asking them like really absurd questions that would just like almost make them embarrassed. So, um, you know, asking Two-Face like, when I met him, like, what's his favorite brand of condom and why he clearly doesn't use it? 
you know, so things like that, like just, and then, you know, are you, a, are you an underwear or thongs kind of guy? Um, you know, just really ridiculous things that exact, then I'd get the audience to call and they all, they too had to ask like ridiculous questions. So, um, and it was my way of actually getting to break the ice and know the artists. So that show became really popular. And then I'd do a call out. So I'd say, this is Fadi on Radio Continental. I'm on holiday here. I'm a radio presenter and I want to get to meet some artists. So if you're an artist who's in the top 10, charts of any Nigerian uh, of the Nigerian charts come over to the to the station right now I've got alcohol this is Club Express we're gonna turn up or I said no 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 the only entrance fee to come to Club Express is you need to bring a bottle and I tell you no lie MI Jesse Jags show them cam Two-Face Dr. Sid LD Goldie people would just show up and they were just like we just were tuning in and we just heard this random British girl saying yo come come to the club bring a bottle of wine bring a bottle of heavy like let's turn up and they're like is she for real and people were actually curious like nah this can't be real they wanted to come and see like is somebody really on the radio just saying come and party with me for real for real and live I'd be like yay guess who's coming to the club tonight so yeah it became like just like yeah Club Express so it became really fun really popular um, yeah, I did. Oh, yeah. Of course. Of course. Because okay. um, I, I was able, I, there was, I came up with the entire theme myself. So it was really based on, like, it wasn't my personality to say, but it was, I had an alter ego personality, but I, th- I felt like it felt to the context because it's how I actually felt. I kind of felt like this fish out of water in a new environment, in a new society and trying to fit in. And I might ask some silly questions that people might expect you to know or some questions that people would never ask. But my personality being the non-conformist, I would want to know these questions. Um, So why not? Rather than people attributed to Fadi herself, people attributed to this Fadi's character. But really and truly, it's actually what Fadi wanted to know. Um, But (laughs) that way, you're not necessarily blaming it on me. It's just kind of like, no, no, it's the character that she plays on the weekends, you know, the club girl, the the dumb blonde girl, you know. And like, you'd ask me some questions. And I was like, like a Jessica Simpson, like, what's tuna? Is it like chicken of the sea? You know, I'll just say some really stupid things. Like, yeah. Like, like, yeah, so really dumb blonde character. So yeah, I was meeting a lot of artists and and a lot of artists would always say, because the main artists, those artists were just fluke. They were just, oh, by the way, um, and Radio Continental wasn't uh, a sought after radio station that the top artists would go to, to do their media rounds. Okay. And when you're talking about brand positioning, so when you want your, I don't know, who the Bizkids, your Tewas, your David O's, when they're doing their media rounds, Radio Continental isn't one of the first radio stations they think of. In fact, I was the first person to bring Two Face onto Radio Continental. Oh, they said we've been trying for seven years to get an interview with Radio Continental. If the artists don't rate the radio station, then they have no need to go there. So they're going to go for the popular ones, your Cool FM, your Rhythm FM, your Beat FM, your whatever, you know. So they already had those that, you know, were seen as like your top five that all the artists will go to. So um, I, I was fine to go stay in Radio Continental. I really didn't mind. But for me, it was just it would have been harder to gain access to the top tier artists that I wanted to get to, to get through to. Um, and a lot of the artists were living on the island at the time. So them coming for interviews on the mainland and in the middle of the night at nighttime as well. 
on a Friday night. They already want to turn up on the, on the island. So just those, like I said, you just have to understand your segmented target audience. And based on what the goal that I wanted, um, the, the clientele that I wanted for to, to shoot their content weren't the clientele that would be attracted to Radio Continental. They were the clientele that are attracted to Beat FM. Even when I listen to the ads that are being played on Beat FM as opposed to the ads that were being played on Radio Continental, the quality of the of the diff, of the clientele is different. So even if I wanted to shoot the t- the radio, if I wanted to produce the radio jingles or even film the ad the, the, the adverts for these clientele, um, I would have more access to them from Beat FM than I would at Radio Continental. So it was, they were able to open doors. It was a platform because a lot of um, their clientele will also sponsor. So the way they sponsor an event that, and then that way BTFM is automatically attending this event or that event. So I'll be at a, I don't know, maybe a, I don't know, and GT Bank event and Beat FM have been invited there. There's maybe a Hennessy event and Beat oh, FM have been invited there. There's a, you know, whatever, there's a Nestle or Children's Day that's sponsored by Nestle and they're there. So when I then go to these events, I'm meeting the head of marketing, the head of comms, the head of this, the head of, of these companies. And I can then say, yes, you know me as Beta FM radio presenter. However, here's my showreel as a producer and here's what I've done. So I could shoot a TV commercial. I could do this so as well as hitting the artist who would come to Beta FM. I also had more access to the corporate world as well. Interesting. Interesting. Sounds really strategic. So, yeah. how long were you at Radio Continental for before you moved to BFM? Less than a year. It was months. I was there for maybe like eight, nine months. Okay. Then you moved to BFM. Yeah. I think you were there for up to 26 Five years? About five years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. 31st of December 2015 was my last day. I decided to focus on Film Factory. Was it an easy decision? Yeah. I see. I, it, it was easy for me um, after 2013 when my dad passed away because I wanted to then live a more impactful life, one of legacy, one of fulfillment. And as much as I had fun with Beta FM, I didn't think it was my legacy. I knew I didn't want it to be my legacy. I knew I had much more to give the world and I wanted to focus on that and I wanted to focus on what fulfilled me. And for me, um, if I was the actual artist who created the song, then that would have given me more fulfillment. I've, I've, you know, I've got such a creative mind and I'm also very business minded that production was able to cater to both sides of me. Um, I felt like radio was great for just um, putting it, giving me a platform, um, but not necessarily giving me purpose. And I felt at the time, Film Factory for me was more purposeful because at that time I had 20 something staff, you know, putting their kids through school, putting a roof over their head. So knowing that my efforts is directly impacting lives in a tangible, measurable way. Um, and then apart from that, the inspiration that that's that's immeasurable. Um, you know, people say, oh, I, I didn't know that you were a female producer and I've seen all the stuff that you've done and you've worked for GE, you've done work for Ferrari, you've done work for Nescafe, you've done work for L'Oreal and Lancome and all these multinationals. And if you can do it, we want to do it too. You shot, you produce this amazing video for DeBange or Wizkid or Tiral, whoever. And, if you can do it, we can do it too. Or I saw your music video and I, it made me want to become a director or a dancer or a makeup artist or become a singer myself. That's something that 
that translation of energy because it's an idea that lived in the back of your head and you actually birthed it i think that's a true reflection of being a creator and being and also being a reflector or a reflection of our ultimate creator um so when i'm in that space um i feel very attuned to my purpose um that's why even with bookings africa it's an idea that was in my head and i wasn't going to be satisfied until i birthed it and i saw it as a reality it just needed to live outside of me it felt almost like it was a bomb detonated underneath my skin and i wasn't going to be happy until i literally just let it explode outside of me you know Mm. Um, and that's how I've always felt. So, and that for me is things that make me feel more purposeful and more fulfilled. And um, after my dad passed away, you almost kind of like reevaluate your life. Like, okay, what is really of importance to me? If I was to pass away myself, God forbid, um, what would be my legacy left behind? How would I have impacted people? What would people say about me? And at that stage, what people knew me for was Beat FM, even though Monday to Friday, I was running my production company and Saturday, Sunday, I was doing radio. So I was working seven days a week, but the only thing that people knew me for was in the public eye was radio. And I thought, I don't want my legacy to just be, oh, Friday was a great radio presenter. Like, I know there's so much more that I've done. I know there's so much more that I'm yet to do. And I just didn't want that to be um, the box that um, I was fit into. Um, so that's why I was just like, no, it's time for me to focus not just on, um, you know, just so not, not, not on popularity, but on purpose. Impact as well. Okay. Okay. Whilst you were in the radio, were there any struggles or challenges? Well, aside the accents at the beginning? No, um, not really. It was the breeze. I loved everyone. Yeah, radio was fun. I knew I worked Saturday, Sunday, so I never came across anyone. Like all the Monday to Friday staff, all the admin, nobody was there. So it's literally like the security uh, guard, the receptionist, and me. So it was really chill. So I literally it was like my own playground. I'll play whatever music, and I love music. So I'd literally would just make sure I'm in comfortable clothes so I can dance. I'd put off the lights. I'd even have like a little strobe light because of course I own a production company. So I've got my own little lights and stuff. So from outside, you'd probably think there was a little nightclub going on. <laughs> so I'd turn off the lights. I'd turn up the music to like the loudest it is. And I'm literally dancing, which is why people always loved my radio show. Cause they're like, you know, it's so high energy. I feel like I'm in a club and I'm like, I'm literally <laughs> dancing. My GM, um, Digi Awokoya, he came up to me one day. He's like, you know what? I've been watching you on CCTV for about a month and you never sit down. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> this is the tunes that I'm playing. Like, your songs are so good. Like, why would I sit down? He's like, I'm the only radio presenter that would never sit down during their show. So I did a whole show on my feet. Like, I would That's never true. sit down. That's how, but I told you, like, I don't like sitting down anyways. Like, I'm energetic. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, I just, it was a way to unwind because I love music. So working Monday to Friday, shooting productions. I never even saw radio as an, oh, I'm going to work. It was my life. Oh, finally, I get to listen to new songs in my own space and, mm. in, you know, without distraction. So I get to hear the great, the top songs and I get to listen like with the best sound system. Why not? And I get to talk as well. And I love talking. So I get paid to do all of this. Shoot, why not? So yeah, it was, it was a breeze. And then, you know, the, the team, I thought, I think there was a time where it was just like the magic team. Like I just felt like radio at that time, BFM was untouchable. Um, and we had such a great cohort of presenters from your Oreca to tools to Bemi to um, Maria, myself, Jimmy, there was like a whole bunch of us that, 
were the, almost like the founding crew of BTFM. Mm. And um, there was such a synergy between us because we're all genuinely real friends. So even outside of work, we would hang out. But BTFM had such a conducive environment that it was easy to bond. Because, I mean, you know, when you're being sponsored by Hennessy and you get pretty much all the free Hennessy that you want, you know, you tend mm. to do some bonding. <laughs> Interesting. Um, so Interesting. It, was, it was a fun environment. I'd probably say... Um, the only clash that I had, but everybody had a clash with, was um, the program's director because he was a bit of a an interesting character, I'd say. Um, but yeah, it was. I mean, it's common knowledge that everybody clashed with him at some point or the other. So I didn't see myself as an anomaly. So I didn't take it personal. I just realized it's his problem, not mine, and I just moved on. So I never let that affect me. But I had a breeze. Great, absolutely Great. loved it. You mentioned I actually Morton. still miss it. <laughs> Do you think you'd go back? Maybe in the near future? Um, nah. Okay. If I owned my own radio station, I'd probably be affiliated, but to, to go back and work for a radio station, I don't think so. Do you see yourself owning a radio station? Never say never. <laughs> okay you mentioned working with multinationals um, i never saw myself owning tech so fair point fair point so i said i never saw myself owning a tech platform so yeah who knows okay all right what's up what you saying i saw i said yeah you mentioned working with multinationals um were some of them cold calls or were they largely did you largely meet them at the events that bdfm got invited to um, majority of my clients were me going cold calling to the ad agencies. Well, I don't call it the yeah, cold visiting the ad agencies. So um, I do my research, find out the name of the creative director, the name of the MD or whoever. And I'll literally just walk in there and I'll just introduce myself and I say, I've got a three o'clock meeting with Mr. So-and-so. And I don't even know who they are. They don't know who I am. I have no meeting I... whatsoever, but I'll walk in there <laughs> confidently and I'll sit there until they see me. And once they see me, I'll present my showreel and 80% Did it always work? They didn't validate it if it was if you had an appointment. 80% of the time it worked. Interesting. Okay. I've learned something. <laughs> yeah, because I mean if if you walk in somewhere confidently enough, and I think maybe I was also pr- privileged because people knew who I was in society. You know, some, some oh, of the times okay. receptionists would even recognize me. So when they recognize me, they wouldn't even second guess that, oh, she's coming here randomly. So they'll go and be like, oh, Madame Fadio, go from Bita, from da-da-da. So by the time you say that, even if they're busy or whatever, even if they, they'll say, okay, she has to wait for a while, but eventually they, was, oh, they were kind enough to give me an audience. And okay. I was confident enough to know that the product that I have is better than what they are, what they currently use. So it's in their best interest to actually listen to me because I can add value and t- to them. And that's why it was an easy sell. So once, whenever they saw me and they saw the show reel, they were just like, wow, okay. So for example, I did that with DDB, um, DDB ad agency. And that's how I got the, um, the what's it called? The MTN job so i used to shoot like a lot of mtn commercials same thing with airtel i got the airtel contracts for like a year where i shot all the airtel commercials um same thing with um with insight insight were not so much cold calling because they're more like family friends 
So, you know, of course, Uncle Biodun Shobanjo, Uncle Jimmy Awashika. I know Uncle Biodun's son, Tunde. We're very close friends. Um, so we call ourselves media babies because we're second generation media, um, media, um, media activists, I should say. Um, so with Insight, obviously, with my dad being and owning his own ad agency, people already knew my dad's name and, you know, the owners of the ad agencies are already family friends. So that was also easy for me to say, hey, uncle, um, who's the creative director? Um, imagine I call Uncle Bioda Shabanja and I'm like, he's the creative director of Insight. Can you set up a meeting with him? Because I want to pitch my agency. Of course, he'll be like, okay. And they too would also grant us an audience because they are chairman, of course. Is, if your chairman says you should do something, you jump and you do it. So I'd also realized that with Nigeria, to be taken seriously, who introduces you is that positioning is very strong. It's sure. very important. Because sure. if a... If a random model that has appeared in one of their TV commercials three years ago introduces you, the respect that you would get is different from when the chairman and the owner of sure. the company introduces you. Did so, you get any news? Um, um, yeah. I mean, there's some people that were just like, you know, they're happy with the production houses that they already use. Some people say they can't afford us. Some people say, you know, we have different things. But either way, um, we, 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 we were able to gain a lot of uh, multinational and corporate Was there one you quickly. really wanted and you were sad when you didn't get it? There was a competitive, com- um, I'd say a competitive um, production company called Video Lounge that was run by a South Africans. So if we'd pitch for the same job, because they had a lot of white people on their team, I found that some Nigerians would be skewered and biased to go towards them because there was this still what I call, you know, neocolonialism thinking where, you know, white Mm. people are still better. Um, So they would still go for the white person who's offering half of what we're, what we are, but at double the price. Um, So there was sometimes it was frustrating where you could blatantly see that the only reason that you're picking these people is because they're white and you just want to feel for lack of a better word, ginger. Do you want to like be able to impress your clients that, oh, we've got white people working on set. But even whatever they delivered, whether the quality was great or whether the creativity was innovative, that really didn't matter. And then there were some parts, there were some things that also were discouraging where it was, once again, it's not based off of our merit. It's based off of how much you're able to grease somebody's palms. So the decision makers, the the assistant producers or the, you know, creative directors or whatever, you'd have to kind of take them out for drinks or the agency producers, because they would be the ones that would then say, oh, actually, we have another production house that we think would be better. But that's because they've already agreed under the table Mm. benefits for themselves from whatever the budget was. So it took me a while to kind of understand these little nuances. And once I was able to understand that, I was like, okay, cool. So now... If I see a, uh, if I meet um, if I meet a produ- if I visit a new production house or a new ad agency, I'd find out who the key decision makers are. I'd if try and take them out for lunch or for dinner, for drinks or whatever. Then outside of that, <laughs> tip, yeah, tell them that you know, I'm basically have an agreement with them. Like, okay, so whatever jobs come up, whatever budget we have, I'll give you guys, I'll give you personally whatever amount, X amount, blah blah blah. You're my guy. <laughs> so really, it doesn't matter whatever work that I did, they would automatically just approve it. And unfortunately, we had to play that game because 
if you can't beat them, join them. Because we realized that we were losing out a lot of corporate jobs that we could do and we could offer. We were way better. Our treatments were way better. Ideas and our execution are way better. And we kept thinking, why are they picking the crappy people? And we realized these crappy people were giving them a kickback. And we, even though we were offering them the Ferrari, we didn't have an agreement with them. So they would in-house, they would there would be a cabal of them that would internally oppose us, not because they didn't like us, but just because we weren't greasing their palms. So once you learn to speak that language, you once you learn how to dance and you know, to, once you learn how to dance, you know, I I I don't stop moving. So um, yeah. Them. I always, like I said, I never see anything really as something as like a major setback or a failure. I just always go like, how can I learn from it? When we return from this short break, we will talk about Fade's latest venture, Bookends Africa. Fade will also talk about pitching successfully to investors and will also share fundraising tips. Stay with us. I'm Oshaye and you're listening to Origins Africa podcast. Hi, dear listener. If you love our show, please leave us a review on iTunes and Apple Podcast. You can also send us a tweet or comment on Instagram at OriginsAF. We love to read from you. Nope, not later. Yes, I read your mind. Do it now. Thanks a lot. Also, click the subscribe button and share with a friend. Let's make a difference together. One origin story at a time. Catch our one-to-one newsletter where we share with you one lesson, two quotes, and one question from each episode published. You'll find it at originsafrica.substack.com originsafrica.substack.com If you like it, please click the like button, leave a comment, share with a friend, and subscribe. Also, you can now watch video snippets of some of our guest interviews. Simply go to Origins Africa Podcast on YouTube, Origins Africa Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, like our videos, and share. Let's make a difference together, one origin story at a time. Hello there. Welcome back to Origins Africa Podcast. Now, in the course of Fadi's work in the media industry as a producer, she had experienced a lot of bottlenecks sourcing creatives across the continent. The process was time-consuming, expensive, and very inefficient. I had the problem anyways. I knew what problem I was trying to solve, and I'd noticed this problem for quite a while, probably since like 2013, when I started filming more for corporates and I had to fly to different countries and I'm trying to, um, you know, be quite frugal with my expenses and try to make sure that my overheads or keep my overheads low and OPEX low and so we could have a better bottom line. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I was just noticing that the, the media industry was quite fragmented across sub-Saharan Africa um, and it just was a strain on the pre-production process. It was quite arduous, quite expensive. Um, so I just kept thinking of ways that we could what could actually be done? What's the solution? And um, 
I had never come up with the, with the name Bookings Africa itself, but I just always like, there needs to be some website where we can just book and find all these models. There needs to be places where we can just book and find locations and all the crew that we need, just like I want to book a hotel. Like, there just needs to be some platform. Like, And I was always convinced that there was this platform already exists because coming from a world of like Google where everything's already tech, for me, I was just like, why isn't this tech? You know, this, this, this whole process could be resolved with tech. Um, but I never thought I would do it and I never knew what it would, you know, it was bookings Africa. Um, so I'd always had that. I always identified the issues, but I never like to focus on issues. I always like to focus on what the problems are because that's just the way I've been drilled Solutions and you know, you built. So in 2019, Fadi, still following her curiosity and towards solving the problem, segued into another sector entirely, technology, and launched her latest venture, Bookings Africa, a Pan-African on-demand digital marketplace that allows creatives, professionals and service providers from Nigeria, Kenya and South Africa at the moment to sell their services and skills online. What is particularly curious about Bookings Africa, as I said on the last episode, is that the name came to Fadi in a bizarre dream. Um, so I remember I was basically sleeping one day and I had my tea, I thought my TV was on and um, I heard a TV commercial. I fell asleep and I heard a TV commercial basically saying, you know, bookingsafrica.com, the number one platform, online platform for, um, you know, service providers across Africa, whether you need a model, a voiceover artist, a photographer, a videographer, you're looking for the perfect location to shoot, you need to hire crew, you need to hire equipment, whatever you need, go to bookingsafrica.com. So I remember like literally jumping out of my sleep, like, oh, finally, this is website that would be perfect for um, my production company so that we can use them for, even we had a current job going on where I needed a location. And I was like, oh, great, let me go onto the website to see if I can find this location that I need. And, um, Literally, I woke up and my TV was off. And I thought, wait, did Nepa take light or what's going on? And I was like, okay, there's still lights. I don't know what's happening, but let me just check. I remember the name of the website and I went bookingsafrica.com and the website's available to purchase. And I was like, okay, did I spell it wrong? Bookingafrica.com, bookingslashafrica.com. Because I was trying to, I remember bookingsafrica and I went through all different ways of bookingsafrica and it did, the domain didn't exist. So I thought, okay, do you know what? I'm just going to buy the domain name. And that was it. That was in 2016. I bought the domain name, did nothing with it. So between 2016 and 2018, every problem that I had a producer as a producer, I'd literally just keep hearing that advert. If you go to bookingsafrica.com, you'll be able to book your service providers, your this, your makeup artist, your hairstylist, your this. And I was like, do you know what? This platform is actually the solution of what the, all the frustrations that I face as a producer mm. to be able to, for my company, to, my production company, to be able to make a quicker turnover, to be able to make more money um, and to be able to work on more projects to automate to the pre-production stage would actually be the solution. And Bookings Africa is that solution. So then I started doing a lot of research. Okay, is it a platform that's needed? Who will use it? How would it work? Blah, 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 blah. And then the more research I did, the more in demand I realized that it actually was. And then I just decided in 2019, I spoke to Shesson, I was like, you know what? I'm going to step away from Bookings from Film Factory and I need to go into Bookings Africa and just at least let it live outside of me, whether it fails or whether it thrives. I just mm-hmm. won't be satisfied until literally I've birthed the idea. Because now it's like I wake up in the morning and I'm thinking, I'm eating, I'm breathing it. And it's now becoming annoying. And I just, I feel like I'm just procrastinating. 
and I hate feeling like I'm in limbo and I just need to know that I'm moving and progressing towards the birth of this um, this platform. Um, and my, everybody around me was just like, well, you've never really done tech as per se. Like, yes, you've worked for Google, but that was managing more like ad accounts, not necessarily building a platform from scratch. Um, and I was like, yeah, but hey, somebody's got to do it. And that's literally my attitude to it. So, so how did you, that's where I felt like it was divinity. Because okay, yeah, I just thought it was divinity because the fact that I had a whole TV commercial in my dream and the domain name didn't even exist or it wasn't hadn't been taken. I just felt like that has to be divine. That's not something that's normal. And I've never people were like, oh, maybe um. You dreamt it. I was like, no, 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 no. It's like, you know, when you fall asleep with your TV on and you know, even though you're sleeping, you can still hear your TV. Mm -hmm. That's how clear it was. It was something outside of me. I know what a dream is. A dream is internal and you can wake up and you can be like, oh, I remember dreaming about something. This wasn't the dreaming. This was me jolted out of my sleep because I was hearing a TV commercial going on. And the fact that the TV wasn't even on and the fact that the domain name didn't exist I felt like, okay, this is definitely God's or, yeah, it was definitely God speaking to me. And over the last three years, Fadi has dedicated her life to building this innovative tech-enabled solution that she believes will shape Africa's workforce. The platform currently has more than 85,000 users. But what was the journey like? of building Bookends Africa? I just did a lot of research. I read a lot. I studied a lot. I literally spent about nine months just studying before I did anything. So um, I literally say that I've got a PhD from the University of YouTube. Um, (laughs) I literally consumed YouTube day and night. And I was literally studying Harvard University, all the entrepreneurship videos they have, Caltech, MIT, Yale, Stanford, all the top universities, any courses that they had to do with entrepreneurship, with startups, with, yeah, with business, with everything, I would just consume it. So by the time I was done watching and reading, I literally had got my business plan together. I had my business model together. I had my pitch deck together, all from online research. Uh, and apart from that, I was also doing qualitative research by going to media agencies and production houses and asking them if they would find such a platform useful and what they would use it for or what would be a deterrent from them to use it. And then I then asked, you know, because obviously I already have a large database of service providers that have, I've worked with through my production company. So if it's models, I have literally thousands of models at my fingertips. I've got lots of voiceover artists, lots of videographers, photographers. So that was already a network that was a low hanging fruit. So I just literally send a bulk email to everyone with maybe like a survey monkey and say, would you sign up to a platform? What problems do you face right now as a makeup artist? Why don't you like working with agencies or how can you transition from being a bridal makeup artist to a co- uh, working on the next t- on a TV commercial? Do you find that there's a lack, there's a bridge, a, a lack of access to that market or things like that? So I was just doing a lot of research. And then when I basically got enough answers, I was like, okay, this is something that's definitely going to appeal to this segment of people and this segment and that segment. And yeah, I was able to just fine tune the idea. And then in a more practical sense, um, once again, with my network, I have a really close friend called Otoye Day. He's like a really close family friend. He's almost like a brother, to be honest. Um, so he basically owns his own company, builds websites and apps. So I was then able to say, speak to him on a brother level and say, help me build my um, my MVP, my minimum viable product. Um, 
which is like a basic, very, very basic version of the website, just so something is live. So, so I could be able to take it to investors and raise money and then just show that it's not just a viable, it's not just a good business idea, but it's actually a viable business because we're generating revenue. So yeah, he helped me build a very basic website. I paid him off for that. Um, I paid him off in some money and I told him when I raise funds, I'll be able to pay him off his balance. And he was fine with that because he had faith in me. So in good faith, he helped me build my website. I was able to um, get a, a, an angel investor. I put some money in myself. I put about $40,000 into it. My angel investor put in about $80,000. By the time the MVP was done and we already started generating revenue. So before I even raised any funds, I had already had about another, maybe like I think $30,000 already of business already go through within the first few months. Um, right. So I was then able to take these figures to the investors. And then that was then when I then raised uh, $350,000 in um, August, 2019. So then be able to go full blown and have a proper robust website in an app that's available in Nigeria, South Africa and Kenya. And we did that in November, 2019. So we officially launched in November, 2019. Great, great. Oh, from then to your now. But there were a lot of no's. I mean, okay. before I got three yeses, I got three yeses from investors in one week. And prior to that, I'd probably had about 30 no's. So you, once again, those no's were like, yeah, you're pitching. Every, but the thing is, you live and you learn because it's a new industry. I might be pitching to somebody who's only interested in, in investing in agriculture. And I'm there pitching to them about a lifestyle media platform. So it's not necessarily like it's the, that my idea wasn't viable or mm. interested. It's just the person might be sector agnostic mm. and I haven't done my research on who the venture capitalist. So I'm not, not realizing that even though it's a good idea, I'm wasting my time because they're not going to give me their funds because that's not where the expertise lies. Mm. Um, but that's, these are the things that you learn um, in the industry. So you then, and this is sort of information that I pass on to new generation um, women who are trying to get break into tech and also trying to raise money. One of the things that I said that I wasted a lot of time was just any events that I hear that there's a VC, I will jump on it and I'll run and I'll start pitching, but not realizing that I'm pitching to, I don't know, some people who are just interested in whatever industry, you know, a banking app. Mm. So, um, yeah, 30 no's. And in, after 30 no's, in, 30 no's in one week, I got three yeses and I was not to go back okay. to each of the investors that gave me three essences. Okay, I've gotten this opportunity. How can you match it? So I was able to play them off with each other and get a good deal, you know? So it happens, all, all happens in the time. But that's what, like I said, I knew that I eventually was going to walk. So, and all the no's were me trying to walk, but as I'm crawling, I'm falling over and stumbling, which is fine. Did you get disappointed Because it's just part of the process of getting to walk. Did you get, what's the word? Um, were there times you wanted to quit? Like it wasn't going to work before you got the yeses? Um, no, not really. Because every time I got a no, I'd always go back to the investor or to the person who said no and they'll say and ask why. So the first times that I was trying to pitch when I got majority of the no's was when my MVP wasn't even ready. So a lot of the people would say, yes, we've seen your business plan, your business model, everything looks great, but we actually want to see a live product. So for me, it was a bit of the chicken and the egg. Because I was like, I'm trying to raise money so that I can give you a live product, but you don't want to give me money until you see the live product. So I was, that was what was frustrating. Not necessarily that they were saying no, 
they, they never said no that it wasn't a good idea. They never said no that it wasn't a good business. Because even without a website, I was still making money offline just based on the strength of the database that I had and the network that I had. So I was able to show that even offline, without it being a technical business, a tech solution business, I was raising, I was um, generating revenue. Then when I was able to do my MVP and still also prove that as a tech platform, it's also generating revenue, that was when I then started getting all the yeses. So that's why, because as soon as I was getting a no, I'd go back to everyone and go, okay, why did you tell, tell me no? Oh, you want to invest in agriculture. It's not your area of expertise. Got it. Why did you tell me no? Okay, you like the idea, but you want to see a viable a website that's working. Got it. You want to tell me? So everybody's answer was valid and when it was never to do with the content. Yeah, okay. So that was why I would say I wasn't really discouraged. I just thought, okay, how can I overcome this? So the next person tells me yes. Mm, okay. Aside finance, were there any other challenges in setting up Bookings Africa? Um, yeah, because you know I'm a I'm a non-techie going into a techie space, so just navigating in that new industry, there's just going to be some, you know, um, just. I won't necessarily call them challenges, but just, you know, when you're just in a different environment, you just kind of have to find your feet and find your own tribe almost. So who can I cling on to or hang on to and, you know, become a, to become my friend, somebody that, you know, in, in, in media I already had, whether it's my Beat FM click, I already had this kind of crew. I already had some people in the production houses or ad agencies that I can go and have drinks with, but I literally had nobody in tech. So if I had any questions, who do I turn to to ask? So that's where um, my biggest challenge was. So I just decided to gate crash any tech event. So TechPoint would have a conference and I'll just get myself a ticket and go by myself because I didn't even have any friends to go to these events with. Mm. So I end up going to like a TechPoint event. I'll go to, I don't know, Access Bank have their disruptor um, African FinTech Foundry Disruptor um, Conference. I'll buy a ticket and I'll go there and I'll network by myself just to see if I can get people who, that, who would be on my side or build my tribe, build thought leaders, build industry people that can give me industry insights. Um, I'd call the owners of like Tech Cabal and I'll say, um, introduce myself and say, I want to take them out for dinner or I'd buy lunch and I'll just go to the office of Paga and I'll just say, hey, I've heard there's a CEO here, the CEO is CFO, here's some flowers and here's lunch. Let's do lunch together. And then I'll just wow. buy them lunch and just start a conversation with them that way. So I really kind of bulldozed my way. I bulldozed my way into the industry. Like, oh, you don't know me? You're going to get to know me huh. by force. Okay. So, yeah, that's probably one of the biggest um, challenges that I had was okay. finding a trustworthy or a reliable network that I was comfortable with. Okay. Especially because women in the industry were not are not that popular. Interesting. Now, as usual, we asked Fadi, looking back through the years, what you'd ascribe her success to, her hard work, skills and talents, or luck. Um, in the words of is it Daniel Coyle, who wrote the words, um, who wrote the book, "Talent is overrated." Definitely, I don't subscribe success to talent. I think um, hard work is the key to it all. You've got the rule of 10,000 hours, like David Beckham. If you stand at a football pitch for 10,000 hours in your life, trying to score a goal, guaranteed you'd be one of the best strikers in the world. If you put enough time into something, you become a specialist at it. 
Um, so that with the bit of nurture and just the way my upbringing set me apart from everybody else here and being growing now I grew, I'm in a patriarchal society I still feel like my mindset not seeing gender not seeing color not seeing race not seeing any of these typical um, biases that women would ascribe to themselves and see themselves as weaker see themselves as lesser than I've never seen myself as that so I think that mindset is actually the key to my success because I've never been able to see myself I've envisioned myself already successful it's like it's like saying as a bait as like saying not seeing yourself being able to walk I don't see that I literally can't envision that so even if in my journey I fall over that's fine but I still see that I'm going to be able to walk but I find that the mindset of the typical woman or the typical yeah especially when I've been an entrepreneur here is I've got to limit myself to just crawling because walking is a man's world and I don't even see that. I just see whatever it's, a, if, if you call it a man's world, a woman's world, a dog's world, all I see is I see myself in that. I see myself walking with my head strong, surviving and thriving. And I don't know how to see myself other than anything like that. So for me, mindset is the greatest attribute to mindset and hard, hard work. And of course, God's love, God's unmerited favor, um, because he has opened doors that, you know, I wouldn't have been able to do myself. So, um, yeah, I think that um, that's a, the cocktail for success. On Fadi's advice to listeners. My advice to listeners is you always have to learn. Like, especially if you're moving into a new industry, you have to be quite strategic with the way you move and the, the decisions that you make. Find a mentor, find somebody who's already opened doors in that space or somebody who's already experienced in that in that field, in that industry. Um, lean on them as much as possible. Get them to open doors for you, depending on the market that you're in. But Nigeria, once again, is very... Um, they're still quite um, traditional in terms of it's like a... Who's your family? Who do you know? Um, that's kind of a society. And if you understand that this is the society that you're in, you need to play to their strengths as well and not be too rigid um, in trying to enforce your own ways. Um, so, yeah, it's just literally always been strategic. Who, who can you leverage off of? How can you add value? I feel like once you always position yourself to showcase the value that you can add, or the solutions and how your solution is helping other people. Once you focus on that, then I feel like you'll attract the right people. But if you don't highlight what the value is and you just constantly, especially if you're trying to raise funds and you're just trying to tell them that you want their money, um, they're used to, VCs are used to people trying to ask them for funding. So you really need to showcase and personalize your solution to their lives. So even when I'm pitching, if I see it's a group of men that I'm pitching to and I'm talking about Bookings Africa, I'd start off my pitch saying, how many of you guys have been to Kenya in the last one year? Great. So can you guys open up your your web your your phones and go into a website or an app if you have one and book a barber right now? You want to you imagine you're traveling there tomorrow and you want a haircut when you arrive at your hotel. Can you book a barber right now and uh, and help tell me how much it costs? Tell me how many jobs they've done in the past week? All of that and then they'll all kind of like realize that wait I don't actually haven't. I haven't been able to do that. And I'm like, have you been in a position where you needed a barber or you needed, uh, you know, this? And they're like, yeah, all the time. And I'm like, exactly. That's what Bookings Africa does. All the service providers that you need are now at your fingertips. And you can see and book them just like you book a hotel. Simple. If I'm then speaking to a woman, I'll then go, 
The last makeup, the last oh I'm bad that you went to, or the last wedding that you went to, you just needed somebody to quickly tie your gilly. How were you able to find them? Did it wouldn't it be easy if you could just find somebody to just come to your house right now? Like, yeah, that's amazing. So I tailored my pitch. I'll do yeah. research to see who am I speaking to. Then also, you don't also want to waste time. Whoever you're pitching to, find out how many rounds they've invested in, the sort, the industry that they invested in, how many exits they've invested in. If they've even invested in other companies, try and find the CEOs of those companies and then ask, how is this relationship with this investor? Do you, because it's a marriage. A lot of entrepreneurs believe that the venture capitalists are there to pick them. And when they've been picked, their life has been made. No, it's a two-way thing. You also need to pick the venture capitalists because they're literally like your wife or your husband. They're literally your partner for a duration of time where all decisions you have to make together. So you need to make sure that your values and integrity are actually aligned beyond your financial goals. So a lot of you don't want to be, get into bed with somebody that you fall out with or you realize that you're not aligned with your, your values. Um, so that's why um, that, that's the advice that I'd give is research your VCs as much as possible, as much as you can. And um, yeah, especially if you're a woman, you are a queen and don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Lift your head up and advance onwards and upwards fearlessly. Fadi's aspiration for Bookings Africa is to scale to 15 to 20 African countries in the next five to 10 years, 3 million active users in three to five years with more professions, as well as be the preferred digital work platform in Africa. If you are a creative service provider and professional, you should go to bookingsafrica.com to sign up now. That's Fadi Ogunro. She's the founder and CEO of Bookings Africa as well as the co-founder of Film Factory. Join us next time as we have a chat with Kemi Shunubi. She's the Director of People, Culture, Experience and Operations at TVC Communications. Thank you for listening to our show this week. If you liked it, do leave us a review, a comment and share with your friends. Tell a friend to tell a friend to tell a friend and to tell another friend. We would also love to read from you. So please do send us a tweet or leave a comment on Instagram at OriginsAF. You can also write to us at OriginsAfricaPodcast at gmail.com. Remember, do subscribe at wherever you get your podcast: Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, amongst others. Catch our one-to-one newsletter where we share with you one lesson, two quotes, and one question from each episode published. You'll find it at originsafrica.substack.com originsafrica.substack.com And of course, if you like it, please click the like button, leave a comment, share with a friend, and don't forget to subscribe. I'm Oshaya, and you've been listening to Origins Africa Podcast. Bye for now. My father told me life is not a bed of roses. You gotta put your way to the plow, do the work to smell the roses. Don't back down. Mm-hmm. Whatever you do, don't back down. When things get tight, keep the drive, keep the faith, stay in the fight. Draw strength from the motherland. Let our heroes hold your hand. Uh, you
Boris Boris, thank you.